Good morning. Well, today we are going to be um, wrapping up our series, The Unusual Suspects. Uh, this is our sixth and final week with a look at the 12 disciples. But before we do that, I um, just wanted to pass along uh, a thanks from a longtime uh, member of Grace. Uh, I guess we don't have a membership, so take that however you want. But anyway... Um, so you guys heard in the news this past week that uh, Yuna Lee and Laura Ling were released from North Korea, and uh, praise God. And uh, if you were on our prayer broadcast, there's about 200 of you guys who are on there um, that goes out each week. Uh, that was one of the prayers that we were praying, uh, and we were praying, I mean, because these two women were obviously deserving, but uh, we have a personal connection to them. Um, Paul Song, who many of you know, who served on the Grace Board for a number of years and was, was very, very active at Grace, and uh, he actually ended up uh, marrying Lisa Ling, who is Laura Ling's sister. And so um, he was just, he wanted to pass along his heartfelt uh, thanks to, uh, to everyone back here who uh, was praying. And uh, we just praise God. So if you would just join me in praising God, thank you. All right, well, uh, like I said, we are, uh, we're wrapping up our series. We've been trekking through looking at the, the different disciples of Jesus, trying to figure out uh, how maybe we could learn a little bit from them. And um, so we, we were kind of going a little bit slowly, and so we've gotten through eight, and so I have this, this task of, getting, of knocking out four in one, in one uh, sermon. So you guys kind of bear with me a little bit. We're going we're gonna to do that. We're going to look at four of probably the least known disciples, four of the disciples that we know almost nothing about. You may have never, ever heard a sermon about this, these disciples in your entire life, so if nothing else, hopefully it'll be a little bit fresh for you this morning. We are going to look at James the Less, Judas Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Matthew. And uh, many of you probably didn't even realize that there was another James that there was another Judas besides Judas Iscariot, and uh, there was another Simon besides Simon Peter. But uh, anyway, we're going to jump in. And the two questions that we, we asked last week when we, were, um, when we were doing our study, you guys remember who we looked at last week? Philip and who was the other one? Big Doubter. Thomas. We looked at Philip and Thomas. We asked these two questions. We're going to ask these two questions again. These were the two questions that, that I was asking all week as I was kind of studying these guys, and I want you to keep in your mind as you're listening to who these guys are, and the questions are, why did Jesus choose them? That's the first one. If you'd like to fill in the blanks on your outline, you can write this in. Why did Jesus choose them? Who cares? What, what was it about them that he, why did he pick them specifically? And then, what does that mean for me? Ultimately, what does that mean for us 2,000 years later? How can I apply this to my life? What does this tell me about what Jesus might be looking for in someone who is trying to follow him? Okay, so we are going to jump in. We're going to start with the other James. But before we do, if you would just uh, bow your head with me, let's ask God to, uh, to help us. Uh, God, we are just coming in here this, uh, this morning from all different uh, places, and uh, Lord, we've all had different weeks, and so we just pray, Lord, that wherever we are this morning, that you would just, uh, just allow us to just have a few minutes of, of clarity of mind, that you would open our hearts and our minds uh, just to, uh, to, to possibly hear from you through your word, in Christ's name, amen. All right, so we're going to first start with the other James. Um, in Mark fifteen forty. 
calls him James the Less. And uh, if you have a different translation, like if you have the NIV, uh, they translate it James the Younger. But basically, that word less there, James the less, the, the Greek word, the original Greek word is the word mikros. Can you say that with me? Mikros. Okay. So that word mikros literally means little. Okay. So it's like little James. So we either can kind of think, well, maybe he was just like really small. He was just like a small guy. Or, you know, potentially could also mean that, that he was just younger. So maybe he was actually younger than the other James. You know, James and John, the sons of thunder, right? They get a lot of airtime. So um, maybe he was, just, he was just younger than that James, and so they called him little James, James the less. But it could also describe, and this is kind of more, I think, along the lines of what, what, it's, what the meaning is after here, why they called him uh, little James, is I think it describes his level of influence. You see, um, among the disciples... It's probably, and, and we're, we're going to do a lot of speculating today, so, I mean, you've got you to just bear with me a little bit. And feel free to disagree if you're, if you're not kind of, you know, with me on, on kind of how I'm, I'm looking at some things. But the way I see it, here is this, this James that they called Little James. And as far as I can tell, he didn't really have a lot of influence among the disciples. He was radically overshadowed by guys like Peter and John and James and Andrew. And these, you know, these, these loud guys, these big figures that were asking the questions and they were the first ones to jump out and do different things. And so here's little James. And I think he, he just, he, he was listed like ninth in all the disciples. And so when you look at the list in the Bible of the, of the 12 disciples, it's not just a random list. It's actually kind of like a list in terms of like how close they were to Jesus, how much of a role they played in things. So the further down the list you go, the less influential they were. So here's, here's James. Now, the only other thing that we really know about James uh, comes from his parents. We see in Luke 6.15 that uh, his dad was Alphaeus. Okay, so he ha- his dad was Alphaeus, and then from Mark fifteen forty and 41, uh, his mother is mentioned. His mother's name is Mary, and, uh, and Mary, uh, you guys lost, we lost uh, some PowerPoint up there. Okay, we're working on that, but you can still follow along in your, in your bulletin if you have one of those. Um, anyway, so in Mark fifteen forty and 41, we see that um, it was Mary who was James's mother. And this, was, this wasn't Mary, the mother of Jesus. Okay, Mary was a pretty common name back then. And this passage is actually going to trip you out if you don't like people with like the same names. Because um, here we go. It says, um, and, and this is important to understand, in this part of Mark, chapter 15, Jesus is actually being crucified. He is hanging on the cross. And look what it says. It says, some women were watching from a distance, okay, so they're watching Jesus hanging from the cross. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James the Younger, or James the Less, and of Hoses and Salome. In Galilee, these women had followed him and cared for his needs. So we see here's, here's James's mother getting some airtime, and we also see that James has a brother, Hoses, and Hoses was uh, is mentioned in other places in the Bible. So he's a pretty important figure in the Bible, okay? So what this tells us is that James' family is a family of faith, particularly his mother, okay? Here's his mother. She's been following Jesus around, caring for his needs. She's at the cross when Jesus is being crucified. And then a few verses later, what it goes on to tell us is that she was there preparing Jesus' body 
for burial. This is a woman who absolutely loved Jesus. Okay? Now, I want you to think about your mom for a minute, okay? Moms have a lot of influence on us, okay? Now, here's the deal, okay? And again, we're trying to get to what does this tell us? What, what can we learn about James, okay? Well, here's what I speculate, okay? James's mother had radical faith. I'm not just talking about, like, she dragged James to church each week kind of thing. Like, did your mom drag you to church each week? I mean, that's, that was cool, and that, that's something. But I'm talking, this woman was on her knees praying. You know, this was a woman of deep, powerful faith and conviction. And many of you guys here have a mother like that, or a grandmother like that, or a parent like that, who has profoundly impacted you. Maybe one of the reasons you're here today. And so what I gather is that if he had this brother who's mentioned throughout the Bible, okay, in different places, and he's got this mother of tremendous faith, that James the Less had had a lot of faith too. And, uh, you know, I actually wonder, and I don't know, again, I'm just speculating, but I actually wonder if the fact that he isn't mentioned at all in the entire Bible, the only time he's mentioned is by his name, and then his, his parents obviously are mentioned in his brother. But the only thing that we know is he's listed as one of the disciples. And I started thinking, you know, I actually wonder if that's maybe a good thing. Because if, you, if you've read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, what you know about the Gospels is who's the hero of the Gospels? Who's the hero? Jesus. Very, very good. Very good. All right. Thanks, Peely. Appreciate that. All right. Jesus is the hero. Are any of the disciples, like, are, are they heroes in the, in the Gospels? Really? Not really. Okay. I mean, every time you pretty much see the Gospels, uh, the, the disciples in the Gospels, they're doing something. They're screwing something up, right? I mean, or they're asking some sort of really ignorant question. We don't understand what's going on. They're, they're trying to be the greatest in the kingdom. I mean, like, the over and over. I mean, maybe you could make the case that when Peter stepped out of the boat and he walked on water, that was pretty cool. That was like a heroic moment. But then what did he instantly do? He started to sink, right? So, so you get this feeling almost that like to be mentioned in the Gospels, if you're not Jesus, is not a good thing. So I'm wondering if the fact that James wasn't mentioned at all, maybe he's one of the greatest disciples. You know, like he, he didn't do anything right. He never screwed up. And, and here's the point. I think that here is little James, okay? Little James trucking along doing his thing, not screwing up, just kind of faithfully following Jesus, not getting any recognition, just humbly walking the walk. Okay, let's take a look at another one. We're going to look at the other Judas. You're like, hold up, there's another Judas? I've never, I never knew there was another Judas. Well, there is. It's, uh, it's Judas Thaddeus. And uh, in Matthew 10.3, and I had to go to the, uh, the King James version to, to be able to to dig up uh, both of his names, which actually have some interesting meaning here. Uh, and bear with me on this pronunciation, but it's, uh, I believe it's Lebius. So it says, Matthew 10, 3, uh, this, is, this is Judas. These were a couple of his nicknames. It says, Lebius, whose surname was Thaddeus. Now imagine if that was your name today. He'd be tortured in school. But anyway, um, so Thaddeus literally means breast child, Okay. And the, the connotation there, okay, that's funny. Yeah, some people are laughing. Okay. Um, but the, the, the kind of the idea there is it's like a nursing baby. Okay. So if he were called, you know, Thaddeus, if he were like breast child, he was a nursing baby, we, we can kind of speculate a little, bit, a little bit that maybe he was the youngest in his family. Um, and, uh, and maybe he was like the mama's boy, you know, if, if you're the youngest here, you know, and maybe, maybe you can relate to some of that. But, um, Anyway, and then the word Lebius, 
literally means heart child. So we have this idea of, of this nursing baby, this mama's boy, and then this, this heart child. These are the nicknames that Judas had. And so it kind of gives you the idea that, that maybe this was just a big kid at heart, you know, and he had this big heart for people. And it, it, it kind of makes sense if you look at John 14, 21 and 22. Again, these are disciples we know almost nothing about, okay? So we, all we know besides the fact that we know his nicknames, and we know he was one of the 12 disciples. The only other thing we know about the other Judas is one question that he asked. One question. This is it. This is, this is all the glory he gets right here. John 14, 21, and 22. Uh, Jesus is in the upper room with his disciples. This is like the last night before Jesus gets captured and arrested. And, uh, and, and Jesus is teaching his disciples. And he says to them, whoever has my commands and obeys them, he is the one who loves me. He who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love him, and catch this part, and I will show myself to him. Okay? So it says, then Judas, and you got to love like how he's referred to, not Judas Iscariot. Like, imagine, that's like, you know, if you ever had like a sibling growing up, and, and like you were always referred to as like, well, not, not that person. You know, this is so-and-so's brother or so-and-so's sister. So anyway, then Judas, he said, and I just think this is the coolest question. He says, but Lord, why do you intend to show yourself to us and not to the world? So essentially, the way I read this question, and and you kind of read it for yourself, but the way that, that I see this is, here's Judas, okay, who just has this big heart, okay? And he's basically saying, well, this is great, Jesus. I mean, you know, you've chosen us. We're your disciples. You've, you've shown yourself to us. You've done these miracles. Like, you've done all this cool stuff. You've shown yourself to us. But, like, what about all those other people? What about all those other people in the world that haven't seen you? Like, I mean, what about them? I don't know about you, but I think that's a pretty awesome question. You know, and, and maybe some of us here today have wrestled with that similar type of question. But here's a guy that I see in Judas who just is, you know, he's not consumed with his own greatness. You know, he's not consumed with some other kind of selfish things. But here he is basically just with a heart of compassion for essentially all of us who haven't been able to kind of physically see Jesus. And so, you know, as I start looking down this list of these very, you know, these disciples we know very little about, I'm starting to think, you know, maybe it's true. Maybe the best disciples, I'm going to write a book, I think, you know, maybe the best disciples were the least mentioned. You know what I mean? I I don't know. These guys were were pretty cool. All right, let's look at another one. And this guy is is much different from Judas. We're we're now going to look at the other Simon, okay? So there there was Simon Peter, and then there was another Simon, and we see in Luke 6.15 that he had a nickname, uh, and he was called the zealot, okay? And maybe you've heard that term before, the zealot, Simon the zealot. And you said, yeah, I've always wondered, like, I heard one of his disciples, Jesus' disciples was a zealot, but like, what, is, what was a zealot? Like, what does that really mean? All right, well, let me try and explain what the zealots were, okay? So here's the deal, and there's an important piece of information that you have to know when we're talking about the zealots, okay? The Jewish nation 
was under Roman rule. Okay, you, got, you all got that? That's, you've got to get that part. Okay, The Romans had come and basically taken control. The Roman Empire, dominant, huge deal. Okay, They had taken control, and they're basically allowing the Jewish people to kind of do a little bit of their own self-governing, but, but they're paying tremendous taxes back to the Romans. Okay, The Romans, they're calling the shots. At any point, the Romans can dictate what goes on. Okay, So this this oppressive re- regime, the Roman regime, which is over the Jewish people. Okay, Now, by and large, most of the Jews realized that the Roman Empire was so dominant, it was so massive, there was no way that, that little Israel was going to do anything about it. Okay? They believed that God had to like, move in a, in a massive supernatural way. They weren't going to be able to mount an army and go take on the Roman Empire. You follow me? We on board? All right, so here's the deal. Most of the Jews were like, you know what, we're good with this. We're paying a lot of taxes, but, but they're letting us go to the temple. They're letting us do, you know, kind of be true to God. And we're praying that God would deliver us. But there was one group of people that were like, that is bull, man. That, there is no way that that's the way we're going to operate. They were the zealots. And the zealots were this little faction within the Jewish people. They were extremists, okay? And they basically said, there is no one who rules over us but God, okay? These Romans, they've got to go. They didn't care, okay? They didn't care what they were up against. They basically would mount forces and just attack. It was, they were like the, you know, 2,000 years ago, they were like the equivalent of the suicide bombers today. I mean, they would just go, go after it, okay? So these zealots were passionate. They were passionate about Israel, okay? They were passionate about the Jewish faith. And they hated, hated the Romans, Okay? And in fact, once they would start to mount these attacks and that wasn't working, about around 6 AD, like, they would, like the Romans just totally came and like just crushed down on these zealots. Basically, the zealots went underground and they became this group of what they called Sicarii. And these were these like dagger men, they were called. And these zealots would go out and they knew how to like go up behind like a, a Roman dignitary or a soldier and they'd sneak up with a dagger and they would get them. Why don't you stand up, Jason? This is beautiful. This just came to me right now. And they'd basically like sneak up and they'd have a dagger in their cloak and they knew just where to stab them in the back to, to pierce through the, the ribs and, and get them in the heart and kill them. Thanks, brother. You can fall down and die. Beautiful. Um, so, so, I mean, these guys were absolute, you know, they were, they were extremists, filled with hate towards the Romans. And here's the, here's the problem, though, Okay. The average Jewish person, like I said, was very happy just kind of going along like, hey, you know, it could be worse. You know, we're just going to kind of, you know, just try and do our best to carve out our little life. You know, we'll pay a lot of taxes and have to follow some rules, but we're just going to continue. Well, what would happen when the zealots would provoke the Romans? What would happen? The Romans were terrible. They were brutal people. So they would come back and make life miserable for the Jews. So the average Jewish person, were you a fan of the zealots? If you're an average Jew... No, you weren't a fan of the zealots. Just stop it, man. What are you doing? Now, a few people, uh, I'm sure, had some real respect and admiration for the zealots. But, uh, man, for the most part, this was a real renegade crew. And so, basically, what we know about Simon is that Jesus found Simon the zealot and said, Hey, you, why don't you come follow me? And Simon was one of Jesus' disciples. And so, here's where I started kind of brainstorming and thinking, Okay, I'm going to try and get in Simon's head a little bit, okay? Here's this zealot. Just, I mean, he is just on fire, to, you know, filled with hate towards Rome. And, you know, maybe he saw Jesus, okay? And he said, you know what? I like this guy. I'm going to follow this guy. I mean, why do you think that Simon signed up 
with Jesus. Maybe he thought, okay, if this is the one, people are saying this is the Messiah, okay? This is the chosen one who's going to liberate our people, right? Who's going to free us, okay? Now, that's what the Jewish thinking was, that that there was going to be the Savior who was going to come and restore Israel to power. But the only deal was it wasn't political power. It wasn't worldly power. It was a whole different kind of restoration, which involved the forgiveness of sins, right? So, whole different deal. But basically, maybe he saw Jesus and he thought, this guy is going to lead us on a revolt. This guy is going to be the one to lead the charge. I'm signing up with Jesus. And maybe that's, I'm not saying Jesus tricked Simon by any means, but, but I'm just wondering if maybe Simon said, this guy's radical, man. I like this guy. And early on, you got to think maybe Simon was super excited because early on, what's Jesus doing? He's, he's performing these tremendous miracles. So Simon sees this and he's like, oh man, this is some power. You know, this is what we're going to need to be able to overcome the Romans. And you know what else Jesus was doing besides performing these powerful miracles is he is like Mr. Anti-Establishment with the Jewish uh, uh, leaders, right? The Jewish leaders were, were a lot of them were just kind of like kind of in cahoots with the, the, the Romans, right? And basically like trying to work deals and just make life peaceful. And Jesus is calling them out and saying, this isn't the way it's supposed to be. And you can almost feel Simon going, yeah, Jesus, you tell them, you know, we got to do something about this. This isn't the way it's supposed to be. That's the way, I don't know, maybe, maybe I'm reading too far into it, but I could totally see Simon just being swept up and thinking, this Jesus is the one who's going to lead us on this charge, and we are going to defeat the Romans, and we're going to restore Israel to power once again. But then at some point, what did Jesus start teaching? He started teaching stuff like, you have heard it said that you're supposed to love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemy, right? Well, Simon's been like, whoa, Jesus, hold on a minute. And then he said, you know, You've heard it said that you're, spo- you know, you're supposed to forgive. How many times are you supposed to forgive? Seven times, 70 times. Forgive your enemies? Absolutely. And then, remember what, what Jesus said? He said, uh, they asked him, like, well, you know, who am I supposed to? I got this coin. It's got Caesar's face on it. Like, who am I supposed to? What am I supposed to do about taxes? Is this for God or is this for Caesar? And what Jesus said what? He said, give to God what is God and give to Caesar, what is Caesar's? And at this point, Simon's got to be like, what in the world is going on here? You know? Um, and, then, and then it gets even better. At some point, Jesus says to Simon and says to all of his disciples, um, you know, guys, um, you might think that, like, we're going to be leading this huge, like, revolt revolution type thing, but that's essentially not what's going to happen here. We're not going to be overthrowing the Romans. I'm actually going to be going up on a cross. I'm going to be laying down my life and so that, so that all the sins of the world can be put on me, and I will be a sacrificial lamb for the sins of the world, so that everyone in the world can receive forgiveness if they believe in me as their Lord and their Savior. Now, at that point, I just think, Simon, if he had initially signed up because he thought this guy was like the revolutionary, radical uh, guy who was going to overthrow the Romans, i got to think that Simon is just like totally coming unglued at this point. You know, because... I don't know about you, but I've had some friends who are radical, okay? You might, have, you might have a person in your mind right now who you know, okay? Hopefully they're not sitting right next to you, but okay. Um, people who are just fanatical about something, I don't know about you, but for me, 
The, those people that I run into, they typically tend to be very closed-minded. They're very locked and loaded. They're focused in on their thing. They're, are, are they really open to new ideas? Are they open to debate? You know, thinking, oh, maybe I'll change my mind. Maybe I'll do something. To, oh, that's an interesting point. No, they are like, boom, they are locked and loaded on what they're doing. And so here is Simon, right? And here's the, the most amazing thing about Simon to me. So he is just hell-bent going down a road of hatred, right, to, to, to take to the death, to kill people, okay, to try and free Israel. And at some point, Jesus gets a hold of him, and he does a complete 180-degree turn. Now, you remember in, in, the, in the story, in the gospel story, that um, Jesus kept telling his disciples, one of you is going to betray me, right? And we all know who that was. It was Judas, right? Judas betrayed him. Well, if I'm one of the disciples... And I see Simon the zealot, right? I'm thinking, once Simon realizes what Jesus' agenda really is, I'm thinking Simon's the, Simon would have been my number one suspect all along. I mean, I'm, I'd be sitting there, I'd be like, Simon would have been the one to betray him. Because it's like, Jesus, you pansy, what are you doing? Forgive your enemies, like, you know, lay down your life. We've got to stand up and charge. We've got to go kill people. We've got we to take the power back. You know, and that's not at all what Jesus preached. And so I would have thought, man, Simon would have been the one to be like, we got to put this guy down so we can, you know, rally again with somebody, some other leader. But anyway, here's the bottom line about Simon. I think at some point, Simon had a tremendous dose of humble pie. Just absolutely, he was like sold out for one belief, one ideology. And at some point, Jesus just sat him down and said, dude, you have been totally and utterly wrong you are you have to go 180 degrees in the opposite direction can you imagine how that must have felt in front of all of his peers i mean that takes tremendous humility to be able to admit have you ever had to do that have you ever had to admit you were just going down a wrong road oh man that's the that's like the worst thing to admit to your friends to admit to a spouse or a significant other or you know whoever man and Simon had to do that, you guys. That takes tremendous humility. And what we see about Simon is that that is what was the case. You see, we don't have a lot of really good, reliable sources on what happened to Simon. But the, the earliest sources, and kind of by all accounts that we can piece together, uh, Simon didn't go back and like join the zealots and, and go down in a blaze of glory trying to take out the Romans. But from the earliest sources, uh, they, they um, say that, that Simon actually traveled up to Great Britain, took the gospel up there, and then he was killed for preaching a message of love and forgiveness of sins through Jesus Christ. What an amazing turnaround. And I think it takes incredible humility for him to have been able to make that kind of transformation. All right, let's look at the last one. The last one is Matthew. Now, there was only one Matthew, so you're good. If you're like, okay, good, I got that one. Um, and you might know, you're like, oh, yeah, I know Matthew. He was, what did, what did Matthew do? He was a tax collector. Yeah, we know Matthew. Well, actually, we don't know a lot about Matthew, really. Um, there's, there's one story about Matthew when, he, when Jesus called him. So we've got that little story, and that's really about it. Okay, it's just a few verses about Matthew. And this is interesting, if you think about it, because the guy actually wrote an entire gospel, you guys. So you'd think, oh, you'd have all this stuff that we could figure out about Matthew. You know, he wrote the gospel of Matthew. 
in the New Testament. Well, that's not true. Um, in fact, what I would uh, be willing to say, that what we know about Matthew, um, what we do know, is that of the 12 disciples, I would say that he was the least likely, even less likely than Simon the Zealot, he was the least likely to have been chosen by Jesus. Now, you may have heard bits and pieces about tax collectors, but let me just try and give you a little insight as to what's going on here, okay? So all the disciples were Jewish, okay? All, all 12 were Jewish, okay? So Matthew was Jewish, okay? And he was a tax collector for the Roman government, okay? Do you think the Jewish, his fellow brothers and sisters would be down with that? Is that cool? Absolutely not, okay? So here is Matthew, okay? It's bad enough if there's a Roman tax collector, but a Jewish tax collector was totally despicable, okay? And the Romans were brilliant. You've got to give the Romans just some total evil props here, okay? Because here, here's what the, the Romans knew, okay? They wanted to get every penny out of the Jewish people. And so they said, you know what? We're taxing them for all kinds of different things, goods and services, and all, everything they could possibly think of to tax them, they would tax them on, okay? But they said, you know what? If we get some Jewish tax collectors and we kind of convince them to come work for us, they'll know about the inside dealings and the things that maybe the, the Romans wouldn't know about would be kept secret. So, the, I mean, they recruited the Jews, some, some Jewish people, to go and work as tax collectors for their own people. Tax collectors were notorious because it was a very subjective industry, okay? It wasn't just like here, you know, where there's a, where there's a state sales tax or whatever. I mean, it was just kind of like, you know, if the tax collector was in a good mood, then you paid less. And if they were in a bad mood, you paid more or whatever. If, if they wanted some new thing that they needed some more money for, you know, they would tax you more. And so here's the deal. Here's Matthew, okay? And he... I gotta, let me read this scripture, Matthew 9, 9. It says, um, it's, this is the calling of Matthew. It says, as Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Okay? Now, this is a little piece of information that I think is, is good. There were different levels of tax collectors. Okay? There were, if you were a higher-ranking tax collector, you wouldn't have been in the booth. Okay? You would have like been, you were worked your way up into middle management somewhere, you know, so you were like kind of more behind the scenes. Well, here's Matthew, and the fact that he was working the tax collector's booth means that he was interfacing with the people all the time. Okay? So guess whose face they were associating with all this evil that was going on? It was Matthew. You know what I'm saying? Everyone knew this guy. He was very familiar, okay? And they just flat out would have seen this guy as an absolute traitor, a liar, a cheater. I mean, basically, Matthew would have been on the level with criminals, okay? With just the scum of the earth, okay? With, with child molesters and prostitutes and whoever came to mind as like just the lowest of the low of society, that was Matthew to his people. Okay, so here's Jesus. And this is just what blows my mind about Jesus, you know. Where does Jesus go and call Matthew? It says, Matthew is sitting at the tax collector's booth. He doesn't wait till Matthew gets off shift. He doesn't wait till Matthew is at his house. No, like, I mean, there's probably people walking by. I don't know, but there's probably, you know, he's in the middle of everything. And Jesus walks up to the most despised person in town and says, hey, Matthew, follow me. I mean, can you imagine the scene? you, you got to realize, this is Jesus choosing the 12 guys who are going to represent him on the earth once he's gone. <laughs> Think about this. I mean, this is Jesus saying, you know, this guy would be a good one to build my church on. Let me pick this guy. 
filled with, with greed and, and just, I mean, it's, it's, it's unbelievable to me. Then it's, so he says to Matthew, follow me. And it says that Matthew got up from his stacked collector's booth and followed Jesus. And then in the next verse, we get, we get a picture. Again, this is Matthew writing his own gospel, okay? So just you got to take that into account. It says, while Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples, okay? So basically we've got this, okay, Matthew steps out of the booth, and the next thing you know, there's this dinner going on at Matthew's house. Well, what's going on here, okay? Well, how did this happen? I want you to look at a passage in Luke, okay? Can we put that up on the screen too? All right, I want you guys to kind of be able to compare these because this is interesting to me, okay? So that's Matthew's account. It's like all of a sudden we were just having dinner and all these people came or whatever. Well, Luke records the exact same calling of Matthew. Now, he, Luke calls Matthew Levi, which is like a Jewish name, okay? So, so in Luke 5.29, it says, he's talking about Matthew. He says, Then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house, and a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. So, you see, what, what Matthew is doing, in my estimation, okay, there's a, there's a clear thread for me in, this, in these four guys of humility, okay? And to me, I see Matthew, and he's basically like, he's taking no credit, no glory. He's basically saying, Jesus called me, I came, we were, next thing we know, we were at my house, and people were eating with Jesus, okay? Well, Luke, I think, really kind of tells what's going on. Then Matthew held this great banquet for Jesus at his house, and he invites, he invites his friends. He invites his friends. And, and that's what I think is going on in this passage. And so the question that, that kind of hit me was, well, why is Matthew, he is so on board from the very beginning, you know? How did he get so on board? I mean, Jesus just comes up, boom, he walks away. He's ha- having this huge party at his house. Why, why was he so on board? Well, uh, one of the things that we know about Matthew, we don't know a lot from his gospel, but we do know that Matthew was a tremendous student of the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures. Okay? Because he quotes in the Gospel of Matthew, he quotes the Old Testament 99 times in the Gospel of Matthew. 99 times. Okay? So what that would mean is, even though Matthew would have been kicked out of the synagogue, okay? would have been kicked out for being a tax collector, no doubt. Okay? So he's like expelled from the community, from the community of faith. He wouldn't be able to go in and like listen to sermons and, and hear, the, hear the, the scriptures preached. Okay? He wouldn't get to do that. But what we know is that he still was a tremendous student of those scriptures, okay? He would have known them. He would have, he would have still been thinking about them, and, and they would have been going on in his mind. And so what I wonder is when Jesus walked up to him, he's, he recognized Jesus as the coming Messiah that these scriptures had talked about, had prophesied about. Maybe that's why. Maybe he was just such a student of those scriptures that he said, oh, that's the Messiah. That's the one we're supposed to follow, and he signed up. So maybe that's it. But I actually think that maybe there was something deeper going on, maybe besides just that. See, I wonder, okay, knowing that Matthew was a tremendous student of, of those scriptures, okay, that he loved God, okay, I wonder if he was sitting in his tax collector's booth and Jesus walked up to him and maybe Jesus just kind of looked into his eyes the way only God can look into a person, and Matthew just, at that moment, just realized what his life had become. Maybe Matthew at that moment just said, who am I? What, what have I done with my life? Who am I becoming? What am I living for? 
And I just wonder if at that moment he saw a second chance. You know, he'd been expelled from, from community, from friends, could no longer enter the synagogue, right? I mean, he basically, like, I mean, his relationship with God was, I mean, as far as, as he knew how to do it, was, it was over. And here was Jesus extending a second chance to Matthew, I think. Okay, again, feel free to disagree if you, if you don't under, like my take, but uh, I think that, that Matthew basically just said, you know what? This is my chance to get my relationship with God back. I'm following this Jesus guy. And I think that the reason that Jesus chose Matthew was because he knew, in the, in the way that only God can know things in advance of them even happening, is that Jesus knew that Matthew was a guy who was humble enough who would say, you know what, I, I know that I've messed this whole thing up and, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to follow after. And he knew that Matthew would make a tremendous disciple. So I want you to see a theme, okay? This is a theme that I see running through these four guys, okay? James, Judas, Simon, and Matthew. To me, there's a clear theme. James and Judas, these are two guys that are just doing their thing. They're not getting any recognition for it. They're just going along. They're so obscure that most of us here today, if I had to take a guess, probably didn't even realize that there was another James and another Judas. We didn't even know these guys existed. So they're just humbly doing their thing. And then there's Simon the Zealot. And the theme in his life is he had to be so humble that he would be willing to basically say everything he'd been doing was totally wrong and misguided and misdirected and willing to be humiliated in a sense and go in a totally different direction. Man, that takes tremendous humility. And then there's Matthew. There's Matthew. Man whose life was just, I mean, in the eyes of his peers, of his friends, was just worthless. I mean, he was already broken. He was already humble, in my opinion. So the reason that I think that God chose these four, these last four guys that we know so little about, is because they had an element of humility to them that Jesus just absolutely said, I need this quality. This is going to be unbelievable. We, you guys are going to do amazing things. Because of your humility. I want you to read 1 Peter 5, uh, 5 and 6. Um, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. To me, this is just an incredible verse about the kind of stuff that God is looking for in those of us who are trying to follow after him. And I love what it says there. And this, if you'd like to fill in those blanks, here's, here's the first one. If you, if you want God to, if you want to experience God in your life in a more tangible way, okay, if, if you want God to do amazing things in your life, if, if you just want to, if you want God to use you, for his glory, if you want to be part of this whole kingdom of God that's, that's advancing on this earth, then here's the first instruction. Humble yourself. Humble yourself. I think that is what Jesus is so clearly illustrating through these four disciples and the reason why he chose them is because they were so humble. You know what it strikes me about the 12 disciples is 11 of the 12 of them were from Galilee. Okay? 
The only one who wasn't was Judas Iscariot, okay? But 11 of the 12 were from Galilee. Galilee was, was this, like, rural community, okay? So we're talking small towns and villages. We're talking very common folk, okay? The commonest of the common people, okay? Think about these 12. If you've been tracking in this series, okay? Jesus, of the 12 disciples, he didn't choose one key political figure, He didn't choose one person who was kind of in a position of worldly influence. Not one. Okay? He didn't choose one religious leader from within the religious establishment of the day. Okay? And there is a clear reason why, I think. And the reason is, is because he wanted humble people. Plain and simple. I think the practical takeaway for me that that I took from, from studying this week was, you know, if, if I really want to be the kind of person that God wants to choose and God wants to use, I need to make sure that I'm in a position of humility so that God can do that. Um, I want you to look at um, Matthew 9, 11, and 12. It, it goes on. This is the continuation of the story where Matthew had invited all of his friends, uh, you know, the, the tax collectors and sinners, to his house to be with Jesus. Th- this, to me, illustrates point blank why uh, Jesus didn't pick a religious leader or someone in a position of, of high influence or authority, okay? Their humility factor just just wouldn't be there, okay? Look at this. So, so it says, when the Pharisees saw this, when they saw Matthew having this party and all the scum of the earth is, is getting together and they're having a party and Jesus is in the midst, okay? When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, they asked Jesus' disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? See, here's the reality. The religious leaders of the day, they couldn't stand to be told that they weren't righteous. They couldn't stand to think that they had done anything wrong, that they, that they had any measure of sin, that in any way maybe they weren't perfect. The religious leaders of the day were so self-righteous. They had it so together. See, they couldn't stand this stuff. And it says that they... They said this, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? And on hearing this, Jesus said to them, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. You see, the way I take that is Jesus is basically saying, look, I came for everybody, but let me tell you something. The people that I really came for are the people who recognize that they need me. Okay, Those are the people that I came for. If you're looking for God to come more into your life, if you're like, man, I don't understand. Why is there this disconnect? I had this great relationship with God a long time ago, and I just feel like it's gone way down. And where is God? And what's going on? And, you know, I don't understand. Well, one of the things that I don't know if this will solve it, okay? This isn't just like a universal fix-it type deal. But one of the things that I wonder is, are you in a position where you are recognizing a need for God? See, Here's the reality. As far as I see it with these four disciples, if you want to experience God more in your life, I think you need to admit your need. That's the second fill in there. Admit your need. Now, many of you are probably sitting here thinking, well, yeah, I I remember that. I heard that in a sermon like 10 years ago. And uh, I admitted my need for Jesus as my Savior, and I put my faith in Christ. And, yeah, I've already done that step, right? 
I mean, I've admitted my need in, in that way. Like, and that happened to me when I was a kid, or that happened to me, you know, whatever, or, or I'm still kind of wrestling with that now, okay? Let me tell you something, okay? This step is not a one-time thing. I missed this for so many years of my life, you guys. This has been something that has just been revealed to me, like, within the last year, and it has been profound in my life, okay? Here's the deal. Here's what I thought, okay? I gave my life to Christ about um, about eight years ago, okay? And at that point, I was like, okay, I realized, like Jesus says, okay, you're not perfect. You need a Savior. You need God to come and forgive you for your sins. And Jesus is the one who gives you that forgiveness through his death on the cross. You got to admit your need, and you give your life to Christ, and you are like, woo, you're good. You're good, okay? And you're always good. Like, you're, you're saved. That's it. And I thought, cool, I'm good. Like, say I was like down here, and now I'm like up here. Here's the reality, okay? So then I was like, okay, I've got this step done. Like, I've admitted my need. I, I've got it. It's, it's closed. It's finished. And the only other time that I would really admit my need is, like, when I was, like, going through a major crisis. You guys feel me? Like, when you're just, like, totally sick or completely stressed out, and you're admitting your need at that point. Well, here's the reality, and here is just what I want to leave you with because it's been profound for me, okay? Admitting your need for God is actually a day-to-day thing. It's an everyday thing. It's not a one-time put your faith in Jesus Christ and now you're good. The reality is this. 1 Thessalonians 4.3, it's not on your outline, but 1 Thessalonians 4.3 tells us that it is God's will that we would be sanctified. It's God's will that we would become more like Him. Okay, That's what God is in the business of doing. Okay? He wants us to become more like Jesus Christ. Okay? And we need his help to get there every day. So whatever it is that you're struggling with in your life, when you think about, okay, how am I acting like Jesus and where in my life am I not? It's just asking for God's help day in and day out and saying, God, I am a, this is just for me. Okay? You fill in your own blanks. But for me, it's like, God, I'm just selfish a lot of days. Just plain and simple. Or God, I have road rage a lot of days. Or, you know, God, I just don't like this person I work with. Or, you know, whatever the case may be. But there are things in us that basically we, if we're going to be honest, we say, God, if you want me to be more like you, I need your help day in and day out. That's the purpose of the Holy Spirit inside of us. But here's the deal. God's just not going to take us over and we're not, it's not like we're robots and God's just going to like automatically program us, okay? If you're not admitting and saying, God, I'm inviting you to help me, change my heart, do something, purify me, make me a better person, God's just going to kind of allow you to do your thing for the most part. God doesn't just intervene. He gives, he respects us. He gives us free will. So here's the deal, okay? For many of us, you know, think about every day, starting your day by saying, God, I need your help in these areas. Help me and see what God might do. So, in conclusion, what what I see from these four guys is God chose them because they were humble and ultimately what goes concurrently with that is that um, they recognized that they had a need for him. And and that is why I believe they were some of of the greatest disciples of Jesus. Let's pray. God, we thank you for um, the last six weeks and uh, for how you used 12 uh, very ordinary men in many respects uh, to do incredible things, God, because you empowered them. But we thank you uh, just for what we can learn through them. Uh, Lord, 
help us to, um, to be humble enough to accept instruction from you, to accept leading from you, to be willing, if, if we're not going in a direction that is the best, that we might turn and go in a different direction. Lord, for those who are here, maybe they've never in their life admitted a need for you. Maybe they've never put their faith in you as their Lord and their Savior, Jesus. Lord, I pray you would, you would just help them to realize um, that none of us are perfect and we are in need of a perfect Savior. Lord, and for all of us here, Lord, help us to just get in a posture of humility and, and admitting on a day-by-day, moment-by-moment basis that we can't do it all on our own, that we can't be God, that we need your help. So, Lord, just put us in a position where you can utilize us and do wonderful things in us and through us for your kingdom. In Christ's name.